welcome to the Pridopod, where our mission is to improve the productivity and profitability of the construction industry. Our mantra is safer, faster, smarter, easier, and our measure of success is making a positive impact on your business, wherever you're listening from. My name's Adam, and part of my job at Prida is to look over the horizon and help our customers and their customers achieve long-term success. I don't have a crystal ball, but I do have access to some of the industry's most respected experts in fabrication, building, design, and the cutting edge of research. I hope you enjoy these opportunities to step back from the day-to-day and explore the topics that will shape the future of building. On today's episode, I'm joined by architectural scientist, Dr. Tim Law. Tim spends most of his time thinking about a parallel universe that many of us don't stop to consider, the world behind your plasterboard, beneath your floors, and above your ceilings. As we learn more about the negative impacts of mold on human health, keeping these parts of a home dry and healthy is only becoming more important. Thankfully, we have highly qualified and passionate advocates like Tim to teach us what everyone involved in wall framing and trusses can do to deliver healthy homes and to act on behalf of homeowners by urging building surveyors and certifiers to exceed the minimums of the National Construction Code. Hello, Tim, and welcome to the Pridopod. Well, thanks for having me, Adam. Hello to you and hello to all your listeners. So one of the goals of this podcast is really to help everyone across the industry build better homes for people and families that are going to stay safe and healthy for decades into the future. And you have a rather unique insight into some of the things that go wrong uh, and can make our homes unhealthy. And we're going to start with mold today. And we know it's an annoying problem in a home. We know it's something that nobody likes. But what I've learned from you is that it's actually more dangerous than that. And you even describe it as the stuff of biological weapons. So maybe you could start by telling us a bit more about the dangers of mold to our health and well-being. Right. Uh, well, thanks, Adam, for that. Um, yes, I I do have a passion for um, this, and I think we have to understand that um, mold, like um, like any organism, has a role to play in the general ecology. So mold is um, a category under the kingdom of fungi, and what we have is that fungi are are really our great um, nutrient recyclers. They recycle dead material, they break that down and give the nutrients back to the soil so that we can uh, reuse those nutrients. Um, and, and the way uh, we hypothesize what goes on is that mold basically enters into um, a substrate, a nutrient base, and it tries to colonize it. So what they do is that they create a territory and they try to keep out all other organisms from uh, consuming those same nutrients. Um, there are a few things that goes on here. One is that it releases these things called mycotoxins or mold toxins. Um, what these toxins do is that they basically give them that competitive advantage. We, we have actually uh, found ways of using those mold derivatives. The reason we have uh, penicillin is because we have derived that from the penicillin mold, which uh, was discovered to basically give out toxins that kill off a large range of bacteria. So ingenuity comes into play that we can use mold to actually uh, be for our benefit. Okay, so there's some ways that mold can be used for good, but obviously that's not going to be the focus of this discussion. So before we get into talking about the building practices and how to avoid mold in our homes, can you give us a quick science lesson on how exactly does mold make us sick? And maybe start simple and then get into some more detail, because I think it's very important for this discussion that we understand the severity of the problem. When we get mold growing on in buildings, 
um, it happens in a very uncontrolled way and very often the mold creates toxins uh, that are harmful to humans and not only the toxins but even the parts of molds whether it is the spores that are like the seeds of mold or the hyphae which are the branches and filament of mold these things when they break off they can cause a variety of different um, reactions to different people so broadly speaking there are four kinds of um, health implications from mold uh, there is the allergenic there is the uh, pathogenic the toxicological and the inflammatory. So I'll cover this one by one. The allergenic is something that we are quite familiar with and something this is covered by the World Health Organization in its uh, publication in 2009, talking about the dampness in buildings. And they made a very clear case that um, the damp buildings uh, have a very strong correlation with the incidence of respiratory illnesses. And this respiratory illnesses like asthma, uh, um, uh, rhinosinusitis and so forth, they tend to be triggered by an allergic reaction to mold. When I say an allergic reaction is um, what what the um, the person is suffering from is primarily an overreactive immune system. So um, to illustrate, when somebody gets an anaphylactic uh, reaction to say peanuts, the anaphylaxis is the one that is really problematic, not so much the uh, the trigger itself. So the, what a person is suffering from is an immune response to it that is um, compared to the average person over the top. So 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 the the, the peanut is not really uh, poisonous in that sense, but the overreaction of the immune response is what. Uh, creates the problem. So that's what we have in allergic reactions to mold where people who are sensitized to it react in a way that is overly sensitive. That seems to be fairly well documented, especially in the cases of asthma. Okay, so asthma and a runny nose, I mean, these are very common immune responses that are easy to understand and I'm sure we've all experienced them at some time. But are there also some more serious health implications? Now the next one, pathogenic is when the mold actually infects a person and takes residence inside the host. So this can be quite a scary thought. Now most of us are able to mount an immune response. We, we, we breathe in thousands, tens of thousands of spores every day and, and, and our immune system has a way of basically um, um, dealing with that spores and preventing that from uh, taking residence in us. But there are some people with certain illnesses, for example, cystic fibrosis, where they are not able to mount an immune response to mold. So what happens is that if they inhale mold, the mold might actually breed inside their lungs. Right, there's a con uh, there, there is a condition called aspergillosis that comes from this mold aspergillus. Um, and what happens is that uh, these people who have cystic fibrosis and if they, uh, if they inhale mold, this mold can grow inside their bronchioles uh, and inside their lungs um, to form these fungal balls. Um, and, and these people are entirely reliant on antifungals to treat those, um, uh, to treat aspergillosis. If they don't, uh, if, if they happen to get a strain of mold that is antifungal resistant, there is basically no way to treat uh, those conditions. So there are people who, who, who can't mount an immune response, people who, have, uh, who are on immune suppressants, who are going through, say, chemotherapy or so forth. These people shouldn't be exposed to mold because mold could actually uh, be pathogenic to them. I think we're still in the territory of health implications that most people are familiar with. We know that things like allergic reactions can vary enormously from person to person, from minor nuisances all the way up to being fatal. 
But I know you're not done. So what are some of the more exotic but equally harmful risks associated with mold? Now, the third category is where mold can be toxicological. Um, and I think in the area of animal husbandry, this is very much more understood when they look at uh, uh, feedlots given to animals. And they have found that certain um, toxins like orcatoxin or trichothecins uh, can wipe out the entire livestock because uh, the grains were not stored properly and, and, and it became moldy. Um, it happens to us too, uh, though on a much lesser extent, there are some foods that can uh, be more prone to um, harboring mold toxins, uh, peanuts, coffees, and so forth. So uh, those things can actually add to our toxic burden. Most of us are able to deal with that. But there's another category of people who don't, do, don't deal so well with this and then they have a response. And that's the fourth category, the inflammatory response. Uh, this is an emerging field of study um, because um, there are, statistically speaking, a lot of people who can be susceptible to a biotoxin overload. So this area was developed by um, an American physician, his name is Richie Shoemaker. He noticed that the mold patients he was treating were also very similar to those who were exposed to a dinoflagellate exposure. That is when we have an algae bloom. Sometimes we talk about a red tide or a green tide when the algae suddenly blooms, and when people are exposed to that, they, they get exposed to cyanobacteria. And he was finding that the, the, the more patients he was treating had very, very similar symptoms, and he could treat them with a very similar protocol to those others. Now, it turns out that in his studies, he found out that there is a large number of us who have the genes that make us susceptible to biotoxin exposure. He's looking at 24% of the population. Just to give you an idea, Australia's population has one of the highest population in terms of uh, people who have asthma, and that's at 11%. So imagine twice the number of people uh, are actually susceptible to um, mold exposure, where when we are exposed to mold, we are not able to properly detoxify the mold and the, uh, and the, the, the biotoxins accumulate in our body to the point it puts our body under a constant inflammatory stress. So we are constantly uh, trying to deal with this inflammation and it breaks forth in a variety of different symptoms. Some of it uh, are, 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 for example, brain fog or chronic fatigue. But what we find it is, um, it, it is quite systemic in the sense that it affects multiple organs and it is manifested in multiple symptoms. So it is a very, very systemic, deep-rooted kind of chronic inflammation. inflammation. And, and, and that uh, illness is called biotoxin illness or uh, more technically known as CIRS, Chronic Inflammatory Response Syndrome. Now, CIRS used to be something that was not very much understood, but it is increasingly being understood now. Um, just this year, the National Health and Medical Research Council of Australia, NHMRC, that is the, the highest funding medical research body, um, started uh, an investigation into biotoxin illness. Uh, I've been privileged to be part of this. This is run by Macquarie University under Professor uh, Jules Gulliman. Um, but uh, it's, it's a very large research team, but I'm, I'm, I'm with the group that is looking at the environmental exposure that's causing this illness. So it is no longer something that is going to be um, uh, fairly unheard of very soon. It's going to be entering mainstream consciousness. Okay, so we have these organisms that are all around the home. They're trying to invade and take over as best they can. They can make us feel sick in a number of different ways, a lot of which I wasn't aware of until just now. 
and two miles is quite terrifying. Um, all the things you've described and the possible impacts that that has on human health. So I, mean, I guess my next question then is, what do the current regulations look like in terms of mold and especially mold around a home? Right, Adam, that's that's a really good point that you have. And I think you had a really good start in that we have got to look at the health ramifications of mold. Otherwise, there is uh, no reason to invoke uh, certain clauses in the legislation and in the code to deal with that. Let me explain. Um, if mold is not a health problem, then mold is not a problem. It, it, it is as crucial as that. If we cannot see mold being a health problem, then you know what's the deal. It is just an aesthetic appearance thing, just paint over it. But if mold is a health problem, it is not good enough to try to just paint over it. In fact, it is not even good enough to just try to kill it. Uh, there are standards around that tells us we shouldn't try to kill mold because even when mold is dead, the the, the fragments of the mold, uh, of the cell wall, uh, of the hyphae and of the toxins are not removed. So we can't just do that. So if you bring it all the way back, mold is such a big problem then we have to deal with it right from the very top. Now, are there mechanisms to deal with this? And I think you're, you're going to have viewers from all over Australia. So I might have to say that uh, it really depends on the various, uh, uh, what the law says in different states. Just to give you an illustration, um, in Tasmania, where I was from, when I was looking at the legislature, there's nothing inside the Building Act or Building Regulations in Tasmania that deal with the need to have healthy buildings. That doesn't mean we don't have to have healthy buildings. There is actually a public health act where it puts the onus on the environmental health officer to make a determination whether a premises is so unhealthy that uh, no person can safely occupy them. So that is under the, uh, the, the Tasmanian Public Health Act. Well, over in Victoria, where I am currently am, it is slightly different. Um, safety and health of buildings is found inside the Building Act and building regulations. And we find in the Building Act, there is a requirement that a building surveyor uh, has the power to issue a building notice or a building order if he is of the opinion that it is a danger to the health of any member of the public or any person using the building. So now let me uh, draw the two differences. In Tasmania, the responsibility and, and the one who has the statutory um, right to make a determination is the environmental health officer. In Victoria, it is the building surveyor. In Tasmania, the burden of proof is to show that the building is unhealthy to every person. In Victoria, it has to be shown to be unhealthy to any person. So let me illustrate. In Tasmania, the EHO or environmental health officer has to show that if there are 100 people who use a building, there will be 100 sick people after that. In Victoria, the building surveyor only has to show that if 100 people use a building, one person gets sick because of the building. So it really depends on where you are and you've got to look at the state uh, differences in terms of firstly, what does the law say around um, health in buildings? Who is the person responsible for making a determination? And what is the burden of proof? So in that sense, I would say that in Victoria and in uh, many states that use uh, the Model Building Act, which was introduced um, uh, in the 90s, uh, have a very conservative and um, 
uh, uh, a precautionary principle in which they approach this in that there is not uh, an overly onerous burden of proof on somebody to show that the building is making them sick. Now, the difficulty comes in that building surveyors are experts at the, at, at the construction code and in the building legislature. They tend to feel a bit uncomfortable in the area of looking at environmental illness, even though it looks like the way the, um, the statutes are framed up, it puts the responsibility on them to be able to make that decision whether a building is unhealthy. So I think that is probably where we need to create a lot more awareness and exposure because, as I said before, if we cannot show that there is a health ramification, then there's really no problem with mould. Right. So once the mould is sort of established and it's, it's in the building or it's in the home, you mentioned that it's almost too late. You can't fully, you know, retract the, the, the damage done and you can't undo that. And so, uh, and I think, as you mentioned, that the, how that's treated around Australia varies from, from state to state. So what are building codes doing then to prevent that mould growth from happening in the first place? Yeah. Um, and I think this is where Australia has actually been a leader in the world when it comes to understanding this. Um, and let me take you back to uh, the start of this story, which was um, in 2018, there was a federal parliamentary inquiry into biotoxin illness as a result of water damaged buildings. The one that instigated that inquiry uh, was a previous member of parliament, Lucy Wicks, um, uh, a federal member of parliament for um, Central Coast in New South Wales. And she was somebody who suffered from um, mold illness. And her journey was much shorter than many people. She was able to make the connection quite early between the water damage in her building um, and her struggling with word recollection, not being able to give her parliamentary speeches properly, her, her, her brain turning to mush, as, as, she, as she described it, her, her skin going on fire when she's exposed to certain uh, buildings. And, and she was the one that really drove um, that federal parliamentary inquiry. And as a result of the parliamentary inquiry, quite a few things have happened. Now, at, at, uh, one of it was um, the NHMRC grant that I mentioned uh, just earlier on, but also there have been a few other recommendations as a result of that grant that um, the construction codes should be reviewed by the state and the federal government to see whether it is being fit for purpose. During that time already, um, I have been working uh, in Tasmania with uh, my colleague, Dr. Mark Dewsbury. Uh, we have been finding uh, an issue with condensation and we raised that issue to the Tasmanian Building Regulator, uh, Consumer Building and Occupational Services, uh, CBOS for short, and they funded research in uh, uh, in looking at condensation in buildings and they were one of the main movers to bring about the condensation provisions that we finally found in 2019. So the NCC National Construction Code 2019 introduced for the first time condensation provisions. Now, that, that, that was a, an, an important first step, but it also shows that up to 2019, you could have condensation in your buildings even though it was code compliant. Now, what does condensation look like? It looks like this as a result of us introducing um, additional requirements for energy efficiency. And in 2009, we introduced requirements for um, bushfire, uh, uh, requirements AS3959 into the code. This created a fabric that was a lot more airtight. Uh, 
to make buildings more energy efficient, we, we, we tended to build them more tightly and wrap them um, to prevent cinders from blowing through spaces. Um, some of them have been sealed off. So we create a very airtight kind of an environment. The problem is that we are constantly introducing vapor into the building uh, by, by a variety of different human activities, whether it's cooking, laundry, showers, breathing, everything we do adds moisture to the air, to the, to the, to the extent of about 10 liters per person per day. Now, most of it is carried away, away by ventilation, but the tighter we build buildings, the greater proportion of that 10 liters per person per day actually gets locked up inside the environment. As the vapor tries to, um, uh, to uh, the, the vapor pressure inside is higher than outside, so it tries, to, it, it tries to migrate outside, but on the way as it tries to migrate outside, there are a few things that, that, that inhibit it. So prior to 2019, there, there wasn't a requirement for vapor permeable membranes. So if you wrapped buildings in vapor impermeable membranes, the vapor would eventually reach that membrane, accumulate there and condense there. So you'd get sodden um, insulation, you'd get damp plasterboards, the pine would be sitting in, in, in dampness and so forth. And, and once you add water into the typical Australian building, uh, you, you are bound to get mold because we are building with so much mold food. For example, everything that we build in buildings is, 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 is cellulose-based, whether it's LVLs or plywood or, or, or paper-faced plasterboard. Um, basically, everything that we put into a building's MDF, uh, chipboard, everything, once you once it gets wet, a mold is bound to grow. So we found that this was a really really big problem, and not only was it a problem once you 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 created it, it was a problem that it was kind of designed in and built in. Remediators tried to fix the this by trying to um, vacuum that mold and clean it off. But there are some things that you can't change. You can't change the membrane of a building. For example, if it's behind a brick veneer, you're not going to be able to get to that membrane. And, 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 and there you have uh, created a situation that the only way to deal with that is, is, is to remove the vapor from the air, which is really, really difficult to do. So when we understand that the, the, the methods of remediation are very, very limited for a designed and built-in problem, then we've got to realize that we've got to fix this right from the start uh, at the design phase, at the construction phase, so that we do not try to fix this at a, at, at a later stage where we are very, very much on the back foot to deal with this. So, so, so overall, this is a very big problem. Uh, we have come late to this, but uh, we are making um, significant strides over the last few years. So I'm, I'm very pleased that Prida is taking an interest in this and trying to, to promote an awareness because it, it is very widespread. Yeah, well, I mean, you've touched on some interesting things that are going to become more and more prominent issues, particularly as building codes across Australia and New Zealand move towards more energy efficient buildings, which often means more airtight buildings. And uh, we could probably get onto some of them. I think we're going to need you back for a part two, Tim, because we've just gone so far down this rabbit hole already and it's been such a fascinating journey into what's going on inside our homes. So we'll definitely get you back on to explore some of those implications of you know, new codes, building more efficiently and also choice of timber, of, sorry, timber, um, and also choice of framing material and what are the decisions that we can make at the very start of building a home that can make it healthier for the long term. But for today, and maybe just to wrap up this episode, what advice could you give any fabricators and builders that are listening to this and working with timber frames in particular to help ensure that the finished home is mold-free and a healthy place to live? Well, I've been often told that after people talk to me, they start to get very fearful. Um, I, I don't know. I, 
<laughs> I, I, I don't necessarily want to create a fear of mold. I think what we need is a respect for mold. And I think that is probably the message that I'll, uh, I'll, I'll leave with the builders and fabricators. Have, have a certain respect for mold because mold can create very serious health uh, implications for those who are using buildings. Um, we are looking at um, a stage where um, buildings could fail us in the sense that people have become so sensitized to mold in buildings that they cannot only they, they, they own, not only have to leave buildings they have to leave cities that is a tragic tragic situation for people to find themselves in when when the built environment fails them so i i think the message i will leave uh, at this point is that we, we need to have that really healthy respect for mold mold has a place as a decomposer outside buildings, but we don't want them inside buildings because if we do, our buildings would start not only rotting, but they'll become way, uh, they'll become unhealthy way before they become unsafe. So that is something for us to be very, very, very careful about. I mean, we've looked at buildings that have become uninhabitable after the first winter. We don't want that to happen. So let's have a really healthy respect for mode and, and to see um, how we can develop a proper understanding of um, tackling mold issues in buildings. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic um, thought there because you know, for me as an engineer, obviously, I'm thinking predominantly about how do I make this building safe in a structural sense. But as you pointed out, an unhealthy building is also an unsafe building because there's so many things that could afflict the occupants you know, if mold is allowed to grow unchecked and, and if it's not properly considered in the design of the building and then monitored and, and maintained. So, I mean, thank you so much for your insights into some of these things that are going on inside our homes we might not know about, some of the decisions that we can make uh, wherever we are in the supply chain to stop these things from happening and to ensure that people have healthy homes they can live in for the long term. As I said, we'll definitely get you back on to dive into some more of these topics. It's going to become more and more relevant with the new NCC coming out in Australia and the building code changes in New Zealand. So today we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time and your expertise, Tim. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Adam. That's all for today's Pride Pod. Thanks for listening and thank you to Tim for sharing his knowledge and insights, as unsettling as they are. Don't forget to check out our show notes to take a deeper dive for yourself or download some resources to share with your team. Join us again next time for an episode focused on growth. Veridi Group's Chief Design Officer and Head of Product Development, Nick Hewson, is going to help us uncover the significant opportunities for lightweight framing within mass timber projects. If you enjoyed today's episode, we encourage you to share it with your friends and colleagues and make sure to subscribe via Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any ideas for future topics or want to drop me a line, I'd love to hear from you. Find me on LinkedIn or email me at adawson at pridaanz.com. Thanks for listening.